0: Welcome to the Sadler Lectures Podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his short but influential essay, What is Art and Institutional Analysis, George Dickey will set out a mini history of attempts to define art and then denials of that and then yet a further attempt which is his own proposal of the institutional theory of art that depends on the art world. And he begins by framing this in terms of three phases. And if we're thinking about the history of creation of art and talking about art and philosophical reflection on art, the first phase occupies most of human history. The second phase would be a relatively short time, largely within the 20th century. And then the third and final phase in this analysis or this Schema would be the current time, whether we call it an institutional theory of art or not, it would be the time of Dickey's theory, which does provide some sort of definition of art, but a, a different sort than the earlier Definitions. So he calls this phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one, he talks about as the traditional attempts to define art from the imitation theory on. So he mentions two main theories of art, that is theories of what constitutes the work of art as opposed to everything else, or what defines a work of art. One of these is the imitation theory, and we can call it representation theory we can call it mimetic theory these are all more or less the same and it gets its real start with in the west at least with plato saying that artwork is merely there's a value judgment there imitation of realities ways of depicting things and this would go even for creatures that that never really existed like centaurs as far as we know you take in the imagination the torso of a human being torso and head and arms and you plop it onto the body of a horse minus the head of the horse and boom you got a centaur now you can draw it or paint it or sculpt it or discuss it in literature or depict it in some other ways. And as Dickie points out, you know, there have always been some problems with this theory when we're thinking about art. Okay, so theater would be representation of human actions on the stage, like Aristotle said, also representation of their thoughts and words and spectacle. But what about music? Does music represent? It's always been kind of difficult to say precisely what music is supposed to be doing given this imitation theory. I mean, we could say, well, you know, people are imitating bird calls or something like that, but that doesn't help that much. And it's also difficult when we're thinking about poetry and language and those sorts of things. So there are some problems with the imitative theory of art. And he he goes on and he says, there's another possibility as well. Well, the theory of art as expression of emotion, and he says this has focused on a different property of the works of art, the relation of a work to its creator. And so we say things like, well, you know, artistic works are things in which we express our thoughts, or we express our emotions, or we express our experiences, we express something. And, you know, you could think of Leo Tolstoy, you know, art is supposed to produce communion through sharing of emotions as a prime example of this. But there's many other sub-theories that also viewed art and artistic activities and products as essentially engaging in expression. And, and these two kind of battled for quite a while. And both of them were ultimately shown to be inadequate as theories of art. So he says, the expression theory is also proved inadequate. No other subsequent definition has been satisfactory, although not as fully satisfying as definitions. However, the imitation and expression theories do provide a clue. So they, they weren't a complete loss both singled out relational properties of art as essential. And he thinks that there was some advance in doing so. So the process of trying to say, what is art? What constitutes art? What is essential to art? Even if it failed, it turned out to be quite useful. Then we move into phase two. What happens in phase two? Well, in the 20th century, a lot of theorists start despairing of the idea that we'll ever really be able to define art in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, in terms of a traditional definition where, you know, the the word for definition, horos in Greek, actually means boundary. So think of a circle in which you've got everything that's that thing inside Everything that's not that thing outside. We want everything that's art inside and we don't want anything that's not art inside that circle. We want all that out of the circle. What is the border? What allows us to define this? Some people said, well, we're never going to arrive at anything. It's not simply imitation or expression or any essential thing that we could point our finger to and say, aha, this is what all art has in common. All works of art share in this essence. And there were a lot of ways of doing this. There was, you know, use of Wittgensteinian ideas you know, the notion that Wittgenstein had that what actually is a game? We can't quite say what a game is with any sort of definition because any any way that we try to define it, any characteristic that we pick out, there's always something that seems to be an exception and yet is a game. Are games supposed to be fun? What about games that are deadly serious? Are games involving uh, winning and losing? What about throwing a ball against the wall? You know, and we can go on and on. You may have read Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations in which he formulates this, which had an incredible effect on the art world. And there were other people who are raising similar arguments. He brings up Morris Weitz's article, The Role of Theory in Aesthetics, and two arguments that he's providing, a generalization argument, a classification argument, and he examines and discards them there. That's not really quite so important as far as the development goes, but a point that Maurice Mandelbaum, as he says, raised about Wittgenstein's famous contention that game cannot be defined and Weitz's theory about art is germane here. He says that the challenge to both is based on the charge that they've been concerned only with what Mandelbaum calls existing exhibited characteristics. Exhibited characteristics would be things like is an imitation of something real or the product of a composition of imitation of something real or is an expression of emotion, thoughts, desires, whatever it is that we're going to say in an expressive theory. Those would be exhibited characteristics. Dickey goes on and says that Mandelbaum is right in talking about non-exhibited relational aspects of game and art. So what are we talking about there? He says, By exhibited characteristics, Mandelbaum means easily perceived properties, like a ball being used in a certain kind of game, or a painting having a triangular composition, or the plot of a tragedy contains a reversal of fortune what would a non-exhibited characteristic be? It would be something much more complex, much more relational, based in something else. And actually, Wittgenstein is providing some sort of clues here with his notion of language game, but also form of life that's irreducible to a set of rules. So phase two does serve some sort of purpose in that it helps to show the problems, the failings of the previous theories of art that people were relying on. Now, notice that Dickey is not saying, oh, well, bad theory, we get rid of it entirely. We reject it. It's thrown away. It's canceled to use today's parlance. No, instead, we need something that can incorporate what's right in those, but also get beyond what was wrong. So this is where he proposes an institutional theory of art. And this is going to focus on non-exhibited relational aspects. He uses a couple different words here, aspects, features, or characteristics of works of art. And here is where he brings in something that he doesn't originate himself, but takes from Arthur Danto, the notion of the art world. The art world, as he says, is an entire broad social institution in which works of art have their place. And he notes that there are systems within the art world. So drama or theater is a system. Painting is a system. Sculpture is a system. Literature can be understood as a system. And he says that each of the systems has had its own origins and historical development. You can't reduce it down to an essence. You have to look at these things historically, and you might even say sociologically, although he doesn't use that word in this discussion. Now, he tells us that one central feature all the systems have in common is that each is a framework for the presenting of particular works of art. And it provides us with a way of saying, this is art. This is not art, at least in what he's going to call a classificatory sense, but also in the evaluative sense in which we say, this is a good work of art, or this is really a work of art, right? With sort of emphasis in the voice. So this third way of looking at things allows us to get beyond these earlier theories, get beyond the rejection of them and provide something like necessary and sufficient conditions. And he will do so in defining a work of art as a artifact A set of the aspects of which has had conferred upon it the status of candidate for appreciation by some person or persons acting on behalf of a certain social institution, i.e. the art world. And he points out that there's several features to this, which we'll look at elsewhere. These are acting on behalf of an institution, conferring status, being a candidate, and appreciation. Along with this also goes artifactuality. There has to be some sort of doing something, some transforming something in the process, some producing a product. And Dickey thinks that this theory and definition of art can explain to us what art really is and how we can make sense of it. He does say that a little bit later, some may have the uncomfortable feeling that his definition is viciously circular. And he says that it is circular, but not viciously so. It's providing us a genuine understanding of what's going on when we say that something is art, when we sell something as art, when we classify it as art, when we produce it and when we hang it. So towards the end of his essay, he then says, once the institutional nature of art is noted, the roles that such theory of art as the imitation and expression theories played in thinking about art can be seen in an interesting perspective. For example, as long as all art was thought to be imitative, imitation was thought to be a universal property of art. But then we realized, no, no, there's more to art than merely imitation. So long as we turned our attention to expressivity, that was taken to be the essence of art. This, what we earlier calling exhibited qualities or properties. And so he says the role played by the expression theory was different from that of the imitation theory. It was seen as a replacement and served as its correction. Developments in art had shown that the imitation theory was incorrect. It was quite natural to look for a substitute that focused on another exhibited property of art. In this case, its expressive qualities, interpreting them as expressions of the artist's. And then he says, we had to go through this period of doubting whether we could come up with a definition. And now we have a satisfactory definition by reference to the art world, the institutional theory of art that allows us now to understand what the essence of art is, which turns out to be a complex relation to the art world. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.